want you to know that my family and I are really excited to be here, and you all have been awesome. So from the bottom of our hearts, thank you uh, so much for that. So with that out of the way, uh, we're going to continue our study in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. It's a study we've been in for a number of months, focusing on how the we is better than me, and we find ourselves this morning in, in chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9 in our time together this morning. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is one of the primary chapters, and I believe the most instructive passage in the New Testament um, on the issues of marriage and divorce and remarriage and, and all those uh, fun topics, but obviously relevant topics to our society and to our lives today. And because of that, we're going to take an extended look at this chapter over six messages or so. Obviously, we'll have a break in July to focus uh, on missions and hear from the missionaries. But, but when we get back in August, we're going to look at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 over six messages or so to give you really what the Bible has to say about the marital relationship and God's view on these very important issues. And, um, you know, the, the, the new guy was tasked with kicking it off. I'm not sure what, what that means. Um, <laughs> But before we get into this, let me say a word uh, to all the, the singles out there. Obviously, we're focusing on marriage, but, but this is absolutely uh, for you too. God has plenty to say for you in, in singleness as you prepare to get married, all, that, all sorts of things. So don't tune out. Don't think it isn't applicable. It truly is for everybody, and I'm, I'm not just saying that to get you to listen, uh, I promise. <laughs> but this morning, as we try to set the stage for everything we're going to look at in this chapter— we're going to discuss the promises and pitfalls of marriage. Because you're probably aware, whether single or married, both of those P words apply in the marital relationship. There are many great things, great promises we have as two become one in marriage. There are also some obstacles and struggles that occur as two become one in marriage. And that is obviously because men and women are very different. That should come as no surprise to you. If it does, we should talk. <laughs> but in life and in marriage, men and women have different rules, different roles, different goals, because God made us differently. So let me try to illustrate that for you. There was a college computer professor teaching class one day. When one of his students, he stopped, and then he asked the teacher, he said, hey, with respect to computers... Should they be referred to in the masculine or the feminine gender? And he, and he honestly didn't know, so he said, well, let's, let's discuss this. So he gathered two groups in the class. One was all male, the other group was all female, and he, and he asked them to engage in dialogue and to come back with their conclusion on whether computers should be characterized as feminine or, or, or masculine. The men finished early, not, not surprisingly, <laughs> and came back with a conclusion that computers should be characterized as feminine for the following three reasons. First, nobody but their creator understands the internal logic. <laughs> Second, even the smallest mistakes are stored in long-term memory for later retrieval. <laughs> and then third, they figured it had to be feminine because as soon as you make a commitment to one, you end up spending most of your time and money to accessorize it. So that was the men's conclusion, but then the women came back and they gave their report, and they concluded that computers should definitely be referred to in the masculine gender for the following three reasons. First, they said computers should be, re should be masculine because they often store a lot of data but are still clueless. 
And second, they're supposed to help you solve problems, but most of the time they are the problem. <laughs> and then third, as soon as you commit to one, you realize that if you had waited just three months longer, you could have gotten a better one at the same cost or cheaper. <laughs> so I'm not, sure, I'm not sure how they decided who was right. But the point is men and women are different, and God made us that way. That is God's recipe. And listen, this starts from the very beginning of our lives. Some of you might have seen this video that's going around Facebook. But if not, I want you to watch it. Do we have this video? Watch this. There's the girl. <laughs> There's the boy. That is, you've got to play that one more time. I just think this is so funny. Oh, she's swinging her legs. Getting, there he goes. So even from the very beginning, boys... And girls, men and women are different. And when we don't understand that, we only view things from our own perspective, that's when we run into problems. It's when we, when we make the me more important than we in the marriage that we run into trouble. So we're going to try to help you out this morning. Um, but we're not going to solve all your problems today. Uh, you're going to have to come back each week and, and hear all the messages as, each, as these messages will build off of each other uh, once we get back into, into the rest of this chapter. But we're going to try to lay a foundation this morning, give you the first layer of what you need to understand about a marriage. Um, so let's get into it, break it down, what the Lord has to say for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll read verses 1 through 9. Paul says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, one the other, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourself to, yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment, for I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper, proper gift of God, one after his man, this manner and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widowed, widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, we thank you how instructive it is, how practical it is. Uh, for our lives in all areas. Lord, I pray that you be with us this morning as we talk about these sensitive topics of, of, of marriage and, and, and just how we handle uh, all aspects of the marriage relationship. Lord, I pray that what is said is glorifying to you. I, I, I pray that it is true to your word, and I pray that you teach uh, each and every one of us um, something about ourselves, something about our spouse, something about you. We ask all this in your precious Son, Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin to analyze this passage of Scripture, we see a transition in this epistle here in verse chapter 1 of, of chapter 7. And we see that transition through the statement at the beginning of the verse, where he says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. You see, up to this point, Paul had been dealing with the sins reported to be known in, in the Corinthian congregation. But as we start chapter 7, Paul takes up some questions that the Corinthians had written to him. And we don't know the exact questions he received. We don't have those, that letter or those letters in recorded history. But we do know what they entail. 
obviously, because Paul answers them in this book. But today we're going to talk about some questions about marriage. There's also food offered to idols in chapter 8, issues around the ordinances in chapter 11, spiritual gifts in chapter 12, the resurrection of the dead in chapter 15, tithes and offerings in chapter 16. And just one cue that you can know that this is something that he's answering questions is that phrase, now concerning. And he starts it here in chapter 7. Of Four times through the rest of the chapter, he'll say, now concerning, or now brethren. And one time he says, moreover brethren. And those are some of the cues to know when he's, he's adjusting and, and transitioning and, and answering these questions. And we'll eventually get to all those, but this morning we, we begin to look at how Paul answered the questions he received about marriage. And like I mentioned earlier, these first few verses lay a foundation for the basic things we need to understand about marriage. So I hope today is very practical, it's very tactical uh, in some ways. Uh, but I hope, it is, I hope it, is, is, um, it is good for you, and because it is, it's important things to talk about. And the first thing we need to understand, uh, where we have to start in this series of messages on marriage, is point number one, the doctrine. The doctrine of marriage. Now, what we talk about today will not give you the complete doctrine of marriage, but, so, because we're not going to cover it all, but we are going to hit on a couple of key points that give you God's mind on the topic and is going to lay a foundation for us as we move forward. So look again at verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. So the first thing I want you to note in these verses, this is point A on your outline sheet under the doctrine of marriage, is that God lays out for us the parameters. The parameters. And when I say parameters, I mean that God gives us the design and the definition of marriage in these verses. And this is very simple, but I'm going to tell you anyway. A biblical marriage is one man and one woman. One man and one woman, period. In verse 2, Paul said, Let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. That means homosexuality isn't included. That means polygamy isn't included. It does not matter what our country or any country says is lawful. God gives us the definition and the parameters of marriage. One man, one woman. He is the creator. He gets to define it how he wants. So with respect to the doctrine and theology of marriage, this is very important. Now we don't have the time, and it's not the point of this message, but the issue of homosexuality is very clear and consistent in the Bible. If you have any questions about that, go to Genesis chapter 19, see how he deals with Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at Leviticus chapter 18, verses 23 through 24. Leviticus 20, verse 13. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Jude, verse 7. So we don't, like I said, we don't have the time to, to, to go through all that, but you can look that up on your own if you have any questions. Polygamy can be maybe a little bit more confusing because you know, many of the great men, the, the, you know, what we would consider the great men of the Old Testament, had multiple wives. So did God change you know, what's, what, what was happening there? And the answer to that question of did God change is no. One man and one woman has been God's consistent design from the beginning of man. And another consistent thing since the beginning of man is man's ability to mess up God's design. 
And when Jesus was tempted of the Pharisees regarding the issue of divorce, he, he took them back to the Genesis account of the first marriage. Matthew 19, 5, and, and this, is, this is what he said, and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Twain means two. The two, one man, one woman, shall be one flesh. So that was always God's design. Sin always messes things up. So we have the parameters of marriage, one man, one woman, but the doctrine that Paul lays out here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in these first two verses, goes way deeper than that. Because not only do we see the parameters of marriage, we also see the purpose. That is point B, the purpose. But to fully explain this, you have to stick with me for a minute. I have to lay some groundwork to get to the purpose, because Paul starts this chapter with a pretty big statement when he says that it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now that statement should make uh, some sense if you remember last week's sermon and, and the discussion on fornication. And as part of that discussion, Jeff talked about a, a philosophy of life that was present uh, at some level in the Corinthian culture in the first century, and, and that philosophy was related to Gnosticism, and it said that the physical didn't matter, only the spiritual, and that line of thinking led or, or excused those who espoused that philosophy to fall into some perverse sexual sin because, well, it was just the flesh. It didn't matter. You know, God doesn't care anything about the flesh. Now, it's obviously wrong. We learned about that last week, that the body does matter. In fact, every body matters. Well, there was another branch of Gnostics that went to the opposite extreme. And they said that only the spiritual matters, therefore you must totally deny the flesh and anything that ple pleasures the flesh, even in the context of marriage. And you still see this total denial of the flesh philosophy today in many religions, including Buddhism, even in some levels of Catholicism with the, the priesthood and nuns. And these are the people that Paul was dealing with. And, and remember, there were legitimate believers in the church of Corinth. That's already been established, but they were believers heavily influenced by the world. And the world of Corinth was, was quite worldly, you know, just some 40 miles or whatever down the road from Athens, and, and it was quite worldly. So he's dealing with people that were saying, it doesn't matter what you do with your body, it's all fair game, God doesn't care, and still others that are saying you can't allow your body any fleshly pleasures even if you're married. And so Paul fixes this for them once and for all as he lays out God's purpose for marriage here in verses 1 and 2. And like I said a minute ago, he starts with an interesting statement. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And the word touch here does not mean accidentally bumping into a woman or shaking her hand on a Sunday morning or even giving an appropriate hug. The, the word touch literally means to attach oneself to. It is sexual in nature and context. And we see that context in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 7 when he says, in order to avoid fornication, get married. So touch here means more than how we just, you know, typically define that word in our everyday language today. In Genesis chapter 20, there's a story of Abraham, right? He was going to Gerar and he's afraid of Abimelech. You guys know this story. He's the king of Gerar. And so Abraham tells his wife, Sarah, hey, I have an idea. Why don't you pretend to be my sister? 
And, and he knew Sarah was beautiful and that Abimelech would, would likely want to take Sarah for, for himself. And so he comes up with this crazy plan. And so let me just help the fellows out here for a second. What Abraham did, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> don't pretend your wife isn't your wife. That's not going to work out for you. But in the Genesis 20 account, God saves the day because when Abimelech heard that Sarah wasn't married, at least that's what he heard, he did want her, and the Bible says he took her. But God comes to Abimelech in a dream and tells him that Sarah was married. And, and Genesis chapter 20, verse 6 says, And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thine heart. He didn't do anything wrong. I mean, he, he was told it was Abraham's sister. For I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. See, Abimelech had taken Sarah and was intending on making her his wife. So again, the context of the word touch you know, isn't Abimelech patting her on the back. It, it, is, it is sexual in nature. Proverbs chapter 6 gives a warning to men. In verse 25, the Bible says, Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. For by means of a whorish woman, a man is, is brought to a piece of bread. Which is an interesting statement. And the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? See, that goeth into his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her shall not be innocent. And I don't think I have to provide any commentary on those verses. The context and meaning of the word touch is very clear. So Paul is saying it is good, it is not good to touch sexually or fornicate, to, to, to be involved in fornication. So to avoid that, God allows you to get married. Look at verse 2. The Bible isn't hard to understand. Fornication is wrong. We learned that last week. So verse 2, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. So God provides a solution. And the solution described here is marriage. And I think that it's interesting and not coincidental that the language Paul used in verse 1 is very similar to the language Moses used about Adam when he wrote the book of Genesis. So Paul said it was good for a man not to touch a woman, but if you look back at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Bible says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. This is the first thing that God said is not good. Everything, you know, the creation account in Genesis 1, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. Now he says it's not good that a man should be alone. So it's, it's not good to touch a woman, but it's also not good that man should be alone. That obviously is not a contradiction. We'll explain that. But God said he'll make a help meet for Adam. And he does just that. Look down at verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh that instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now this is the first mention of marriage in the Bible, and, and for you Bible study students, you know the law of first mention has some, some meaning in the Bible. And as we connect this story, into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the purpose of marriage begins to take shape. You see, when God created man in Genesis 1, he gave him a purpose. He had a mission. And man could not fulfill that purpose alone. 
That is why God said he would create a help meet or suitable for him. That's why it wasn't good for man to be alone. We find that purpose or that mission for man back in Genesis 1.28, where it says, And God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So their purpose, the mission God gave them in life, was to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And they were tasked with physically reproducing in order to populate the earth with human beings. And I'm not going to take the time to fully explain all of what I'm about to say. But God created Adam, God created man with the purpose of restoring what was lost in the rebellion of Lucifer and and, and a third of the sons of God, those angelic beings. That was the purpose of the first marriage in the Bible. Well, guess what? As individuals, we have a very, very similar purpose today, and it's just in a spiritual sense. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, commonly referred to as the Great Commission. You guys, many of you know these verses. It says that Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. You see, as Christians, we have a purpose. We have a mission, too, a co-mission with Christ. We are to populate this earth with spiritual sons of God. Sons and daughters, we are to have spiritual children, so we are to evangelize and make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our purpose. We are tasked with spiritually reproducing. And so when it comes to marriage, and when you read 1 Corinthians 7 in the context of the first mention of marriage in the Bible, you cannot separate marriage from our purpose. That means you cannot read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 and 2 and conclude that marriage only exists to satisfy your carnal desires. Now, it should satisfy your carnal desires. We'll talk more about that later. But that is not the purpose. The purpose of marriage is much, much deeper than that. Marriage exists in order for each partner to help the other fulfill their God-given mission. Jeff made a statement last Sunday that the physical joining of flesh is also spiritual. Well, that same statement applies to marriage. The physical union of man and woman in the marital relationship is also spiritual. So if you are only getting married for physical reasons, then you are asking for trouble in your spiritual walk with the Lord. So that's the purpose of marriage. It is spiritual, but Paul obviously recognizes the physical. And he recognizes and acknowledges that if you are actively involved in fornication, then you cannot fulfill the purpose God has for your life. You cannot please the Lord. You cannot make disciples if you live a life of sin. In Romans 8, 8, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. It's impossible. So one of the ways of escape that God provides for the the sin of fornication is marriage. Paul said to avoid fornication, get married. Now, 
I want to be very clear. It is not, it is not the only way to avoid fornication. In fact, the first command regarding fornication is to flee, to get out, to run. We saw that last week. But as you are fleeing fornication, if God, in accordance with his purpose for your life, knits your heart with someone of the opposite sex, in the fulfillment of his purpose together, then it is okay to get married. Because God knows that the closer you get to that person, the more difficult it is going to be to obey the command to flee. There, there come a point where you can't contain according to the Bible. That's what Paul said down in verse 9. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And the word burn here means to burn in passion or burn in lust, not burn in hell. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6, which, which has some really interesting doctrinal applications, but from a historical standpoint was, was a, a love story says, set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof, the coals of love, are, as, are coals of fire, which hath the most vehement flame. So to avoid fornication, to avoid burning in passion, to the point that you can't focus on the mission God has given you, God provides marriage uh, as, an, as an outlet, as a way of an escape. And within the marriage relationship, sexual intimacy is lawful. And that brings us to our next point, because not only is it lawful, it is necessary. Point two is the, the duty of marriage. Look at verse three. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. So now we get the uncomfortable joy of talking about the sexual relationship of a husband and wife. Again, I'm not bitter or anything about being assigned this passage. <laughs> but, I'm just kidding. But, but Paul talks about the husband and wife, Rendering due benevolence to each other. And if you don't, that, that you are defrauding your spouse. And you may say, well, I don't really know what all that means. Well, I do. <laughs> and it means what you think it means. And just in case you don't believe me, let's break down the terms, give you some definitions. Render, the word render means to give away. The word do means you owe or are under obligation. Benevolence means goodwill with respect to conjugal duty. And defraud means to cheat or steal. So render, do, benevolence, defraud, just to define those terms for you that we see in, in verses 3 through 5. So Paul is saying that when you are married, you are under obligation uh, to, to, to give yourself away to your spouse. But here is the key. While you are under obligation to do this, you should not do it out of obligation. You should do it out of goodwill. That means from the heart, it, it even means unto the Lord. There's one other place that the Greek word for benevolence shows up in, in, the, in the New Testament. 
and it is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7, and there it is translated goodwill. And there we see the definition, starting in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6. It says, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill, with benevolence, doing service as to the Lord, and not to men. So again, the sexual aspect of marriage should be given freely and out of love, but it, it is considered one of the duties. We even see this in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 21, verse 10. And when, this is when, when Moses was laying out the law. He says, If he take him another wife, her food, her raiment, and her marriage of duty, shall, not, shall he not diminish? The duty of marriage was providing sexually, emotionally for the spouse. There are two primary aspects of the duty of marriage that I want to discuss. First is the aspect of power. When I say power, I mean control. So that's point A, power. Look at verse 4 again. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. So when you get married, the Bible says you give up power over your own body. And this is important because since God created us, he knows how we work. And since God created marriage, he knows how it works. And when it is working properly, you give yourself totally to the other person. They know that you belong completely and totally and exclusively to them. And so you've made yourself a servant in that way. And listen, this is exactly how we are to be with the Lord in a spiritual sense. I mean, another thing we learned last week is we've been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. And when we get saved, it is because we sold our soul. We are now his slave, his bondservant. But in giving yourself away, when you relinquish your power to Christ, that is when you gain freedom. And that is the same in a marriage relationship. It is not until you give power of yourself over to your spouse, and listen to me, and vice versa, that you are truly free and one in the relationship. That was the goal, to become one. There are still a lot of marriages out there where two are two. This is how you become one. But, but please listen to me. You are to guard what your spouse gives you just as God guards what you give to him. God forbid if you abuse that power. And do not use this message to hold something over your spouse's head that is unreasonable. This is painting a picture of a biblical marriage that takes two parties, each thinking of the other over themselves. There is to be mutual servanthood. But when that happens as the Bible designs, two become one. That is how you experience oneness in your marriage as you both give yourself fully to the other in the purpose of God. And this all works... God set it up this way because of something very, very powerful. And this is point B. God set it up this way because of the picture. Ephesians chapter 5 describes for us in great detail the roles of each spouse. The husband is to love the wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The wife is to submit to her husband as unto the Lord. And then at the end of that chapter, he gives us the key to the whole marriage thing. 
Verse 31 of Ephesians 5, Paul says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and they shall be, and, and shall be joined unto his wife. They too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And so Paul drops this bomb in the form of the mystery of the body of Christ, and that is that our physical marriage is a picture of our relationship to the Lord as his bride. And as it relates to the sexual relationship of marriage, that is just a picture of the intimacy we are to have with our Lord. And we are to give ourselves fully to him. We are to relinquish power of our bodies and our minds and our will. And so not only is the physical act of marriage spiritual, the spiritual picture of marriage is physical. The physical picture of marriage is physical. That's why verse 5 says, do not defraud, of 1 Corinthians 7. Do not defraud or steal from or cheat your spouse out of the physical aspect of marriage. It's too important because of the picture. and Because of what it does in bringing the two of you together as one. Just as getting saved places you in Christ and one with him. So don't defraud. That intimacy needs to be consistent because it is the glue that holds you both together. And defraud is a strong word. Like I've already told you, it means to cheat or to steal from, to keep back by fraud. Leviticus 19.13, one example, says, Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. And so here the Bible is talking about if someone does some work for you, you, you owe them honest pay for honest work that day. So the Bible says if you don't pay a man for a hard day's work, then you've defrauded him. You've stolen from him. You've cheated him. You have robbed him. And that's what we do with, with our spouse many times. That's what we do with the Lord. When we refuse to spend time with him. We, when we ignore intimacy with our Savior. Because you were bought with a price. So don't rob God of your time. Or your treasure, or resources for that matter. As I'm not even going to take time to get into it, but Malachi 3.8 says the other way we can rob God is through withholding tithes and offerings. And again, the reason why is this all goes back to power. Have you retained control of your life? Or are you obeying the Bible? Because you can't have it both ways. So don't defraud, except it be with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Consent means sounding together. It is a mutual decision that is focused on the spiritual. And, and it's focused on the spiritual. And this is very important because it shows priority. The spiritual is more important than the physical because it goes back to our purpose. There are times in your life where you need to solely focus on your purpose, your mission, and you're willing to give up your physical desires to seek out the Lord. And this also, and this is something else that is very important, this also pr provides a great balance for us in the marriage relationship. And, 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 and so many times in all sorts of areas of life, we get out of balance with the Lord. And so this provides a great balance for us between repression and obsession. So just to put it bluntly, don't repress your willingness to be sexually intimate with your spouse to the point that you are defrauding. But on the other side, don't be obsessed with anything so anything physical 
so much that you lose sight of the spiritual. There's a principle in the Bible called temperance. Do that and God will be glorified. Don't do that and you will run into trouble. And you'll run into trouble because this isn't all about you. And that leads to our last point, which is the dependency of marriage. So yeah, at the point you make your marriage about you, you have failed in your role, whether husband or wife. That is because there is a dependency that comes with marriage. Look at verse 6. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment, for it would that all men were even as I myself. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner, another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. So in this last section, Paul shifts just a little bit. And in this shift, he talks about the value of singleness. For all those that have the gift of singleness. And, and that language means something, right? The words of the Bible matter. Every word. And so when Paul talks about it as a gift, that means something, and that means there are more that don't have it than those that do have it. So marriage is normal, but singleness is a gift. And the reason why Paul shifts to singleness goes back to our purpose in serving the Lord. You see, those that are married have an extra dependency. They are dependent upon someone else, and someone else is dependent upon them. We'll get to this in, in, in detail when we get further on down this chapter, but Paul talks about this in verses 32 and 33. He says, But I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how you may please the Lord. Please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how you may please his wife. So if you're a single, Paul says that is a good thing. In fact, it is clear that Paul was single, when he wrote 1 Corinthians. That is what he meant when he said, uh, for I would that all men were even as myself, in verse 7. Now, I will say that, that while we don't know for sure, there is some historical evidence that would point to Paul being married at some point earlier in his life. And that historical evidence has to do with Paul's role as a Pharisee and likely, while it never says, likely part of the Sanhedrin. And, and members of the Sanhedrin, which was an elite group of the Pharisees, had to be married. It was Jewish culture at that time, it, it, to, just to be married. Men, as they came of 18 years of age, um, were looked down upon if they were not married. So it is likely that Paul was married. I think, it, I think he was, and I think that provides more credibility in, in in the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through him, that he was able to experience both. Life as a married man, life as a single man. But again, we, we don't know that for sure from Scripture. What is clear is that he was not married when he wrote the words that we're looking at today. He said, I wish everyone were single because they could focus on the Lord like me. But Paul recognized that everyone didn't have the gift, and so he said it was okay to marry. And I get it, man. The, these words are... They're, so I find, I find very interesting things in the Bible funny. 
But, but the way Paul, in just his matter-of-fact, direct language, doesn't exactly give you the warm fuzzies about marriage. You know, these, like, you can't take 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 through 9, and, and, and write a Hallmark card, you know, as an anniversary, you know, for, for a card for your spouse here. But don't mistake Paul's plain language as an indictment on marriage. He was not indicating that marriage was an inferior position. That is not what is meant by verse 6. So verse 6 where he says, I speak by permission and not commandment, that, that verse is, is misunderstood. So he's not saying, first of all, that these verses aren't inspired, anything crazy like that. He's not saying, I'm not really sure what I'm talking about here. When he says, I speak by permission and not commandment, he is just saying, if you ask me, I like being single, and I think it is the way to go. But that's not a command. If you want to get married, if you don't have the gift, then get married. If God knits your heart with someone in his purpose, well, then get married. Because it does go back to purpose. How can you best serve the Lord with your life? So for all you single folks out there, as you look to get married in these coming years, that's the question you need to ask yourself. How can you best serve the Lord with your life? Can you best serve him single, or can you best serve him with, with someone else? And if it's someone else, who? It's very important. Can you serve the Lord with this, purpose, with this person? The purpose God has given you is not just physical, spiritual. It always goes back to purpose. And so if you can flee fornication, and you have the gift of singleness, well, do that, man. Go serve the Lord with your life. I mean, just think of Paul. Just think of his missionary journeys. And, you know, maybe he was married during those times. I don't think so. Uh, you know, I think he was married before, but I think it was when he was a Pharisee and, and, and before his salvation. So think about Paul's missionary journeys. The time he was gone, the time he was away, how he could just get up and go. Those might have been tougher to pull off if he had a wife or kids at home. But again, if you don't have the gift, that's okay. You can get married, you can serve the Lord with your spouse in a way that you couldn't have alone. So it's not an, marriage is singleness, neither one are inferior or superior to the other. It is how God created you. How can you best serve the Lord? That's what you have to figure out. But if you do get married, you have to understand this dependency aspect. And there's both a negative and a positive aspect to dependency. First of all, point A, if you get married, you will have some problems. You have another person in your life all the time. And you have to care for them and love them. And there are some days you are not even going to like them. Down in verse 28 of this same chapter, Paul said, But and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh. But I spare you. There's trouble there. You have different cares and responsibilities that a single person has. That, that, that God requires you 
to, to, to perform, to care about, to, to think about. God says if, if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an infidel. And there's a physical aspect to that, providing for your family. And so all of a sudden, you have more different cares. You have different responsibilities. So there's trouble there. You know, I've heard Mary's described as a three-ring three circus, the engagement ring, the wedding ring, and the suffering. And that, <laughs> and that is completely should not, and I mean this, it absolutely should not be that way. It does not have to be that way. You know, some of these type of sermons, you've got to provide a little bit of levity, or it just gets, you know, a little bit too weird. But marriage will come with problems but they do not have to consume you. And if your marriage is struggling today, let me just say this. Listen, I, I mean, I know in the heart of, a, heart of every person when they get married, you want a great relationship, right? I mean, no one gets married and thinks, boy, this is, this is going to be really bad. Uh, you know, <laughs> this just isn't going to work out, but let's do it anyway. Let's see what happens. no. Everybody goes into a marriage, you want a good relationship, but listen, the merry-go-round does not turn on its own. You have to put the work in. You've got to put the effort in. And the effort, the key, is gaining the right mind, gaining the right mindset, gaining the mind of Christ and his purpose for your life and your marriage. And that is good news. Because what that means is you do not have to change your life completely in order to change your relationships for the better. You just have to change your mind. In all your relationships, but in particular the marital relationship, mindset is the most important. Because listen, here, I'm going to give you two of our major problems, why we have relationship problems. And, And these are why we have marital problems. First of all, and I don't even think these are in your notes. This is just extra. First of all, we want that other person to think like us, and they don't. It's your first problem. You want them, and you expect them to think exactly like you do, and they don't. God's made them. God's made them individually. God's made them differently. They have their own thoughts, their own feelings. So that's the first problem we run into. And then second, we want to think like we want to think, instead of submitting our mind to Bible principles. So when we go about our marriages, we don't care. We would never admit this. But the truth is, most times we run into problems. We don't care what the Bible says. We care what we think way too much. We want what we want, and we know what the Bible says, and we don't care. And we care about ourselves. We have too much pride. We're not given over control. God doesn't have the power of our life. And so those are the two problems. So we run into relationship and marriage problems all because our mind isn't right. Because we're not thinking straight. So get your mind right. And you'll see those problems begin to dissipate. And you can experience the positive aspect of dependency, which is point B. And that is partnership. So it does come with problems. But there's also a partnership. When the two of you are working together in the purpose that you have together, there is a unique partnership and joy that you can receive. 
Because while singleness is good, marriage done biblically is really good too. And marriage done by the world standard isn't always good. But marriage done biblically is really good too. Proverbs 18, 22 says, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage is honorable and all in the bed and defiled, but whoremongers and the adulterers God will judge. So marriage is good and honorable before the Lord. But it's not and it won't be if you only focus on the me. This, this whole book of 1 Corinthians, that, that we is better than me. And that has to be your focus of, of in, the, in the marital relationship. When we are talking about the dependency. Man, it's Philippians chapter 2. It's name your verse. It's thinking, esteeming the other person higher than ourselves. And the, and the shame of it is, is, so many times we can apply that principle, esteeming someone higher than ourselves. You know, that Philippians chapter 2, having that mind of Christ, Christ, Philippians 2, 5. We can apply that sometimes with our friends better than we can with our spouse. And that's a shame. Because if, if God has brought you together, it is, is for a very unique purpose. And so think of them. Think of them over yourself. And so we, we, have, to, we have to get this right if we're ever going to get our marriages right. And to make your marriage glorifying to Him, you need to understand these things. You need to understand the doctrine of marriage. You need to understand, first of all, there are parameters, but more importantly, there are, there's a purpose. And you need to understand the duty of marriage and, and, and the aspect of power and, and, and just what goes into that and the control that, that, you give, uh, that you give to the other person, that you give to the Lord. And you have to understand the dependency. So do you. Do you understand those things, or did you this morning? Because listen, marriage problems are by far the top counseling scenario we deal with as pastors. Defunct marriages, damaged marriages are rampant, not only in society, but also the church. But it doesn't have to be this way. God created it. God created you. God created marriage. And God's design is perfect. We just have to submit to it. So I hope you're willing to do just that this morning. And if you came in here and your marriage isn't exactly the way Paul described it should be, don't leave without making a commitment to change. 